This is Past Perfect, CU Medieval Radio's program on medieval and early modern history and culture, in association with Civil Radio FM 98. Hello there, this is Christopher Milke, and I am your host of Past Perfect. This is CEU Medieval Radio's show in medieval and early modern history and culture, in association with Civil Radio FM 98. Today we're joined by Dr. Peter Sabo. Um, Dr. Sabo is a researcher at the Institute of Botany at the Czech Academy of Sciences. Thank you very much for joining us today. It's a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. So um, I wanted to have you on the show because your your really your, your main work that you're known for um, is your 2005 monograph on woodlands and forests in medieval Hungary. So one of the things that I wanted to um, talk about in um, the first portion of this interview is um, how do you research medieval forests? How do you go about finding information about them? You have to know your sources. You you have to know what you're looking for and then see if there's anything you can do about it. It depends where you are. Uh, If you're you're German, then you have a relatively easy position. If you're Romanian, you have a very difficult position. Uh, Hungary is somewhere in between. There is some information about the kind of stuff that I'm interested in, but it's not all that much. So what sort of documents tell us about these forests? Uh, Nowadays, um, where I work is this kind of Central European region. Mm -hmm. It has to be something... We we don't get the kind of documentation that you would normally use if you were German or English or French even, which would be some sort of financial documentation. I don't know how straightforward this sounds, but that's the best kind of information you get because they're... Hmm, maybe we should say this at the very beginning. Uh, I, I'm interested in the actual landscape. I'm interested the in landscape. the trees okay, that there are. Uh, Sir Gavin and the Green Knight might be an interesting topic, but that does not concern me. So if you're interested in, uh, in the actual trees and the vegetation and the stuff that's in the landscape, then the best kind of documentation you can get is economic, because that's where they were dealing with the stuff. So let's say if you're English then you take 13th century account books mm-hmm. of of manorial account books and you take a look at the woodland entries so and they would say well you know we have this kind of woodland and we cut this and that much one year and i don't know there are oak trees and ash trees there and this is wonderful i have no idea how wonderful this sounds to an outsider but i find that <laughs> I, f- I find it wonderful <laughs> And if you have a lot of this kind of information, which they do, for example, then you can do wonderful research. Uh, there's a great paper called Fueling the City. It's about the uh, around 1300, I think. Uh, it's the fuel, wood, the fuel wood supply of London around 1300 AD, uh, where it was coming from, what, were the, what they were doing there, and they have a lot of documentation, this kind of stuff. Okay, but if you're Hungarian, this, this just won't happen. Virtually there are no medieval account books, well, there are some, but... Uh, and the other problem is the, to how to put this. The landscape, uh, for a, from a medieval perspective, the landscape is not an interesting subject. They wouldn't really write about it too much. Mm-hmm. It enters the sources when it kind of gets uh, a value for something uh, such as uh, such as an economic value then they would say okay fine and then we would start writing about it but if it for example if it works more or less the way it worked in Hungary that it's outside the scope of any anybody's interest who does who writes mm-hmm. uh, then you just don't get the sources a lot of things are going on but you don't get to find out so you're in this position where you 
looking for at least some sort of source that that I will see. tell you something. And now, for Hungary, I had two kinds, two, uh, two well, two kinds that are the most important. One of them is uh, is called a perambulation, and the other one is called an estimation. So let's start with the estimation. That's kind of that's more straightforward. Estimation is basically going and looking at someone's property, estate and saying how much it's worth because you need to express the amount uh, in money basically because something happened i don't know he committed high treason or now we're confiscating everything and one third has to go to the judge and so on so you need to know how much it's worth or uh, or issues of uh, inheritance once again it's the same okay we we give her one fourth uh, but how much is it mm-hmm. uh, so that actually, this is what I was talking about. The, 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 this is where the landscape enters into the sources. There's some sort of an other interest. For example, now we need to know how much is worth. Okay, so uh, this is one kind of source that was produced in some sort of quantity. I have data for something like 300,000. The, ha- the Carpathian Basin is 300,000 square kilometers, and I have data for 1%. So oh, my you goodness. Do, you do the math. Oh, my goodness. Uh, it's, it's still quite a lot. So at least I have a basic... Oh, I forgot to mention what's in it. Okay, yes. Uh, so what's in it? In it, there is a description of this estate in terms... In very basic terms, there is this and that much arable land, meadows, woodland, uh, fields, sometimes pasture, sometimes it was left out. And mm-hmm. then they say what kind and how big. And how much it's worth. This is nice. It's all from the 15th century, mo- most of it for Hungary. So this is one kind. And I had a look at lots of sources. And uh, then I stopped, actually. Uh, what's almost 10 years ago now. I should go back and look, because now all the sources are on the internet. So I should probably go back and look at the rest. Oh, yeah. Um, and the other kind of source is is uh, something called a perambulation. Perambulation is... Oh, it's a wonderful kind of source. It's very mysterious. It happens to be the same all over the world in all sorts of periods. Maybe it's some human necessity. It's the pre-map equivalent of a map. They said, okay, this is your land, this is my land, we need to know where the boundary is. These are very basic needs. So they just go and say, here, we turned left, we saw that. They're walking around doing this. Yeah, they're walking. That's what it's, yeah, that's your right. That's why it's called perambulatio, they're walking around. So they say, okay, well, we turned left here and saw the the anthill, and then we walked on through this valley and up the hill again, which is called this and that. Uh, and it's very, very, very similar. There are further similarities, uh, even in the procedure, but that gets into the that gets into the mysterious uh, side of the issue that uh, I don't really understand. No, I mean the laws of Manu. It's two thousand years old, at least. I don't know. They tell me it's exactly the same procedure as you would find in nineteenth-century Hungary. I don't think the connection is very direct, but uh, it's there. Anyway, so there are lots of trees in such documents and uh, lots of uh, forests as well. This is something, once again, you can use. Do you have a lot of data for the perambulation? Oh, yes, there's lots. I, I, I did estimates, once again, of, of uh, how many there could be based on a smaller sample. Now I now that I work with the natural scientists, I actually know how I should have done it to come up with the normal number. Uh, but I did come up with the number of 10,000, I think. Square, square kilometers. No, 10,000 perambulations, perambulations per, for, for, for the Carpathian Basin. It's I, I might be completely off, but uh, certainly there are several thousand. That's that's Hungary. I mean, the medieval Hungary only. So, And they're all over Europe everywhere in all sorts of periods. Oh, sure, there are, sure. If you look at uh, Europe and perambulations, there were tens of thousands and then very many. You mentioned that you're interested in the landscape aspect oh. of this, which I think is something that I, I, I really want to hash out a bit. When they're going on these walks or making these estimates, what exactly are they 
seeing, um, just generally, or you can give a few case studies if you like. Oh, uh, you want to know what e- examples of what they saw? Sure, like oh. you know where they um, we turned left at this one blasted tree. You know, oh yeah, that that would be lighting. a lot of that. Uh, the point in in a perambulation is to well, we would think at least is to come up with a landmark that will be recognizable later on as well. Okay, naturally. The blasted tree, or the tree with the huge trunk, or the they would they would also add signs, usually a cross to the tree. So they would say we went to the tree with the cross. They would even go into details. We went to this tree, which had which earlier had the cross, but it was hardly visible. So we renewed it, and so on. There would be lots of this stuff, but there would be also lots of landscape features that are, that that appear to be nondescript. And then we went to the three oak trees, and then we went to the two two ash trees, and it's like. Well, then you get into this debate of, yes, yes, yes. So does this mean that there were only oak trees here? And the logical answer, no. Why would that mean? Because then they would not be able to recognize the oak trees later on and the whole thing would lose its point. I don't know the answer. Uh, I was going to, well, I'll, I'll do it at some point. Then I'll take late perambulations, let's say 17th or 18th century, where I know both the perambulation and the precise species composition of the woodland that they were marching next to. I see. Now compare them see if there's if they if they were choosing the obvious tree or the non-obvious tree the logical answer would be they would they would be choosing the the special tree that's not in the rest but mm. i don't know actually uh yeah I'll, I'll do that at some point yes i mean just an interesting aside question i mean can you actually go to places and be able to look at a tree and say oh that's a very nice 12th century tapwood oak or oak or something 12th century yeah even that is possible there are tens of thousands of medieval trees in europe uh, unfortunately, most of it is in England and in, and, and in Greece. Yes, I mean, around here, not, not too many. No, no, no. But, I mean, a 500-year-old tree is not, is not an exception. An oak is happy to live for a thousand years. Uh, or we actually don't really know how long. I mean, if the conditions are right and trees live very long. Uh, so, no problem. You can find medieval landscapes. Well, it's, it, it's almost grown into business proportions to, to do perambulations in the ground. So, you take, take the perambulation, you take a map, and you go and follow everything on the ground. And you take pictures and then you document it on the internet, whatever you want. Uh, a lot of people do this. Uh, not so much in Hungary, but the potential, for example, in Hungary is, is great. I've done a few perambulations sure. myself. And you can really, you, once you, if you don't understand the document, it's because you're not there. I see. Once you're there, and I mean, and it's a, providing it's, it's not a brown coal mine or something nowadays, but a reasonably, reasonably similar landscape, you will be able to orientate yourself. I think it's Eastern Poland. There's that one prime uh, forest that's advertised as the oh, primeval yes, yes, yes. forest. Yes, I know. Oh, I, 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 I cannot pronounce Polish. Oh, I, I can't me. either. I have a good friend there who does the history of the site. Mm-hmm. It's called Tomasz Samoylik. Mm-hmm. And yeah, he always laughs at my accent. When people talk in the documents, you know, about an oak tree or a lime tree yeah. or things like that, did they see these sort of species the same way that we would see them? Oh, species. Species is a very problematic concept. They had no idea of, the, of, of species as such. That's, that's, that's Linnaeus. Uh, centuries later, who made up species. No, uh, you see, there's some debate about, you know, whether if they say oak, is it really an oak? I don't see the the, the point in questioning their ability to to tell an oak from a lime. I don't think they would be able to tell a a Quercus robur from Quercus petrea, two species of oaks, the sessile and the pedunculate oak. But actually, the species concept is not 
I mean, it doesn't quite work the way we, we like to think it does. With oaks, for example, if we're there, if you get an older species in a relatively intact place, it's very often very difficult to say what species it is mm-hmm. because they, they don't really, they refuse to fit into the species contact, uh, concept very often. I mean, with some... With some species, it does work. Well, for example, with oaks, it doesn't really work. So in that sense, their view of, of, of nature is about as precise as ours. We just pretend we know more, but <laughs> don't really. I have a nice description from a, from well, it's from a little book published in 1600. It's, it's about perambulations written by a Czech person who was uh, basically the highest official in the country at that point responsible for perambulations. And he wrote this guide, basically, this is how you do it, okay? And he has a section on oaks. These are the kind of oaks, and uh, it's fascinating. I, I did show it to botanists, and they were, they really had no idea what to do with it. There are lots of terms in it. Even, even it's written in Czech, but there are Latin names, and mm-hmm. some of those names do fit the modern terminology, but they refer to something else, uh, something else, something completely different. It's something completely different, and also that descriptions how you can tell these these, these trees apart, and that's comp- uh, that's something very very different from what what a botanist would look for. But it seems to be a valid description. I would be able to tell which is which. Well, fair enough. One of the things that I wanted to um, ask you about is going back to the title of the monograph, Woodlands and Forests. Mm. I mean, Woodlands and Forests, before I I picked up the book, it sort of seemed like six of one, half a dozen of the other. But is there a significant difference between the two? In In some regions there is. Uh, and that was kind of, well, one of the topics of that book. I mean, there are two words for a start, so mm-hmm. one would expect some sort of a difference. And the difference is, although it's a very, very complicated subject, uh, so depending on the region and on the period, at the woodland is the place where you would expect trees. Mm-hmm. Uh, a forest is a place where you might find trees, but you don't have to. A forest, at least in the medieval interpretation, comes from forests. Uh, it's outside, and the way they understood it, that it's outside common law. It's a, it's an area that is set aside from common law for the king. He wouldn't go there and do the hunting himself, but uh, it's basically uh, professionals who would do the hunting. But the point is that, that it's originally the word forest has very little to do with vegetation. It's a legal concept. Now, mm-hmm. how, how the two things came to mean, how the two words came to mean the same thing is a very complicated story. And there are two problems with it. We don't really know the beginning and we don't really know the end. The middle, we have a relatively good idea about. Oh, okay. The beginning is, uh, I wonder if, if we ever find out anything, well, reasonable about it because it's... Uh, the concept we know is Merovingian, the first time oh, I see. Uh, the word itself, forestum, in various forms, uh, appears is, is, is Merovingian, 7th um, century. So uh, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult period to find out what things mean exactly, especially as far as the landscape is concerned. Mm-hmm. I haven't really done this myself, but now I did a, for a book that is called The Environmental History... I actually don't know the exact title, but it's going to be a series of three books about the environmental history of the Middle Ages written by a number of people. And I was now responsible for the high, for high medieval woodland. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I had a look at the forests as well, because high, mid- high Middle Ages is when the concept is the clearest. But I had to go back to the beginning a little bit. And uh, well, it was very difficult. It's uh, not only I know very little about Merovingian and 
uh, and Carolingian times, but all, the whole issue seems to be very complicated also. Different territories will have uh, will have different stories, and then there is some sort of a clearer picture in the High Middle Ages. Once again, this this disintegrates into something in the later Middle Ages, in the early modern period. But once again, as many stories as there are countries mm-hmm. or regions. So a basic question for the I mean, the listeners back home. I mean. The most famous medieval forest is, of course, Sherwood Forest. And uh, it's yes, kind yes. of interesting to think that, you know, every single movie has Sherwood Forest, you know, with all of these gigantic trees. And, you oh, know, yeah. there would have definitely been deer in Sherwood Forest. Oh, yes, but yes, yes. Oh, Sherwood Forest, we happen to know that, oh, okay. was about one-fifth wooded in the Middle Ages, which oh, is okay. not that much. No, that's not at all. Uh, now, where they, where they shoot the uh, Robin Hood films usually... Where I know for sure they did the last one. Well, was it the last one? The uh, one for me, the last one. I'm old enough. <laughs> the last one I saw with Kevin Costner. That was in uh, in a place next to London called Burnham Beaches. Oh, okay. Uh, that's not a forest at all. It's it's a it's a wooded common uh, where certain people had rights to do certain things. Uh, and the wonderful trees, the beech trees, result from something called pollarding. Mm-hmm. It's a combination that would happen a lot in in forest as well. I don't know about Sherwood, but Epping Forest, for example, near London or the new forest. You do this when you have to combine grazing animals mm-hmm. and trees. You can't cut the trees and let the animals go go in because they would eat everything that grows and very soon you will end up with a pasture. Mm-hmm. So you have a problem. What you can do is you cut your trees kind of two or three meters above the ground. They'll be happy to grow there. You'll have some wood left mm-hmm. and the animals can graze whatever is left. That's why the trees are so old this for biological reasons probably not much point in going into them but uh, this prolongs the life of a tree a, li- a tree is not a person and anthropogenic kind of uh, ideas are not will not work for a tree so uh, if you want to have an old tree you will have to cut it a lot mm-hmm. that's when you get an old tree uh, so the trees in Burnham Beach is where they do the Robin Hood movie are about 500 years old most of them and they are that old because they were cut repeatedly with this method in now later on place I mean pasturing stopped and the place got infilled little trees started growing up everywhere uh, and now it looks like a wood but it's historically it's not a wood and it's never been a forest right right there was a brilliant um, team of excavators for the city of Novgorod in Russia and one of the things that they noticed is that in a you know fairly sizable city there was a lot of meadow on main avenues in and out of the cities and essentially it was places for the horses to feed okay and you know it's 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 sort of interesting how we have these conceptions and we don't think about i mean pollarding is a very practical thing for a tree you know having meadows and cities is a very practical thing i mean it's essentially like medieval gas stations you might be might think of it that way i guess and then um one of the things that also really impressed me was how, like, the, the, the care taken, how to get the most bang for your buck when dealing with the trees. You'd have the, um, I, if I remember correctly, there were the maiden trees that grew very tall. There were the pollard trees, which you could, I mean, it prolonged the life of the tree, but that you could use the smaller sticks for firewood for instance, and it just really consistently impressed me. The more I learned, the more I I think that there was a very sort of very practical and pragmatic way of dealing with the best way with the resources that you had. Mm, I suppose, yes. Uh, That's one of the things that we're finding out now in woodland management, that, I mean, it's it's no novelty if you say that... uh, 
medieval agriculture, especially high medieval agriculture, was relatively developed business. You know, they had their field systems and all that, but not a long time ago. Still, people would think that, yes, yes, all that, but then the forests, and they were all wild, and they went there, and I don't know what, and they, we wouldn't suppose, or, well, people wouldn't bring woodland management to the same level, at least theoretically or possibly, as the management of the rest of the landscape. We hear about uh, water meadows, which are very, very complicated systems of irrigating meadows and all that. But the, the woodland, until very recently, was all kind of, yeah, that's the rest. And it was like they didn't know what to do with it and all that. But uh, we're finding out gradually it's not at all true. Woodland management was as careful, as complicated as, as normal agriculture. And... Um, yeah, I think it's pretty natural if you look at it that way, that it's every single piece of the landscape was managed. Uh, so why not woodland? We're one, one question I have, since we're talking about the way this was managed, were different types of trees used in different ways? Mm. It's easy to say that this kind of uh, certain trees were needed for certain purposes. But uh, if once again, if you're out in the countryside, uh, you want to be as little picky as it is possible because you don't really have an option. Mm. Uh, I mean, trees are relatively particular about where they grow. So if you need to do certain things and you don't get the tree that you know you think you should have, you have a problem. You have to bring it some from somewhere else. So you want to be, you know, not picky. Mm. Uh, what would happen is there are two basic uses. Let's, we can forget about the very, very specialized uses. If you want to build this kind of ship, then you need that kind of tree in this kind of shape. Okay, but how many ships can you build? Let's be honest. I yeah. mean, I did, I did some calculating and and other people as well. And uh, you can build all the ships that have ever existed from a very, very small forest. Believe me, it is not very important. The important things are two: firewood uh, and building timber. You have to build houses, although they can last long. And for the firewood, it seems, that's the stuff you burn, they didn't really care, whatever. Uh, of course, we know, and they also knew, I'm sure, uh, that different species uh, of tree have different uh, heating value. Uh, you, you know, you burn this, you get a nicer fire, hotter fire. But they didn't really care. They just cut whatever they found they were happy with. Now, for the building timber, that's a different issue because, they're, uh, because of two things, probably. First is... Uh, in certain positions or for certain types of constructions, it's it, it really nice to have, for example, oak, which wouldn't rot, um, whereas other trees would. Or, you know, I mean, there's, you can't build Venice on, on, I don't know what, spruce trees because they, it'll sink very quickly. You need a certain kind of tree that will stay in the water and not rot. Yeah, that's one thing. Yeah, and the other thing is prestige, of course, because uh, building timber in some periods in some places is visible and it's meant to be visible so you want to get the th usually the uh, the the expensive kind of tree so that everybody can see that you can you know you can afford it what sort of trees were very high status or expensive oak oak def no that makes yeah sense. oak is building building timber is I, I don't know the numbers of course everywhere but it's 90 percent of building timber in places where oak would grow i mean not not in uh northern sweden it tends to be oak where you get oak that'll be the building timber uh, at least for constructions, once again, making houses is a complicated business. So you, know. you mentioned, you know, the fact that spruce rots for for trees like that. W would they be used in any particular way if they couldn't be used for housing? Uh, you can make a perfectly good house from a spruce tree. You just oh. you just shouldn't make it in Venice. Oh, okay, fair uh, enough. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Were there any particular woods that like type of wood that was considered really low status or even like taboo, or was it just sort of anything goes? For building purposes or in general? or uh, Let's say in general. 
uh, my people, the, the people I deal with are very practical people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure there existed places where you wouldn't want to go, taboo, the sacred, I don't know what, but okay, uh, no. I deal with the peasants. <laughs> they didn't really care. I mean, uh, you, in my sources, there are no forbidden forests. Ah. Uh, <laughs> Hogwarts uh, would be so disappointed. Oh, well, I know. <laughs> That's a different kind of landscape perspe- uh, I perception, I suppose. In my sources, there are only settlements, very well-defined fields, very well-defined forests where you go and do this and that. And I deal with the practicalities. I don't really know about the mentalities. Well, and I think the source material itself uh, is, is practical in nature. Yes. We've been talking a lot about um, very general aspects of trees, forests, woodlands, etc., um, one of the things that I wanted to ask you in um, this particular portion is a little bit about some of the specific case studies that um, you've worked on. You've done a lot of research on woodlands and forest in Hungary and, um, from what I understand, in Bohemia as well. Would you mind telling us a little bit about sort of uh, some of the interesting things that you've encountered okay. uh, looking at the material? Most of the, 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 the more particular case studies I've done more recently uh, in the Czech Republic Moravia, that's the eastern half. And there were some interesting places there. Usually the more, well, the more interesting places for me are those that uh, kind of stand as islands in a sea of agricultural landscape. This is not the usual kind of attitude. People who like forests or woodlands, they they tend to like kind of larger pieces of woodland uh, in the mountains or somewhere. But I'm fascinated by these smaller places. Uh, And because they're small they tend to be significant in the landscape and this has two consequences they change little because they were rare and expensive and protected as a result that's one thing and and the other thing and of course that's connected they tend to have good documentation if you have a huge tract of woodland somewhere usually documentation will not be quite that good because that simply it was not interesting or rare enough to be written about all that much there are of course many exceptions but in general so my favorite woods tend to be in uh, in southern Moravia, uh, which is a very agricultural landscape, relatively flat, only relatively. And now recently, of course, I have transformed myself into a into a topic person rather than a period person. Uh, once you're a medievalist, I mean, you define yourself by a period. Oh, sure, and then there are different topics. Now nowadays, I define myself as a uh, as, as as a topic person. I'm a historical ecologist for for whatever that means, and so I'm not driven by by uh, documents from a single period. So I'm looking at these places from the earliest documentation, which might be medieval up until the present and I cooperate with the with the ecologists who work on, on current vegetation and also I also cooperate with the paleo uh, the paleoecologists who work uh, with the past that is much much longer than than what we usually work with in medieval studies so for example there is there is a place uh, a small wood Nowadays, the protected part is about 300 hectares. The historical part is 220. It's called Jevin. Anybody who ever, who's ever near Brno, which is where I live, should go and take a look at this place. It's a wonderful little... Kind of it's a flat landscape, and out of that flat landscape comes this kind of hill. Uh, it's about 500 and something meters high. It's a little bit like Ayers Rock in Australia, a little bit. Okay, I mean, don't get too excited, but uh, it's a very nice place. Uh, and it's got excellent documentation because it's rare and bec- also because of ownership. It was always part of a large, esc- large estate and the estate ownership was very conservative. It only had basically two owners from the Middle Ages 
first the, the Liechtenstein and then the, the Dietrichstein family. This is of course the ex-German speaking part of uh, of the country. I see. And there the, the documentation starts in the late 14th century and there's a lot of there's a lot of it up until the 20th century. So I know that there was a lot of stability uh, in woodland management. It, the, the, the place was managed the same way for at least 650 years exactly the same way only the cutting cycle got longer they were cutting it less frequently but exactly the same way up until the mid 20th century where everything changed and now there's there was at least nature conservation who say don't touch anything that's not natural of course this is nonsensical in this case but now they're changing their mind a little so maybe we'll get management back and of course on top of the hill there's a bronze age fortification and right next to the hill there's a very significant paleolithic site archaeological so who knows how long uh, the management has been the same my idea would be at least 3000 years of oh course my. i might be might be very wrong but that's how I, how i would imagine it you said it's owned by these um two families presumably noble families yes yes, yes. and my question though is that they're they're owned by these families so with this little island wood in surrounded by a bunch of agriculture, was it something that you know was used for the purposes of the estate, or was it something that local people used? Ah, that changes, uh, and that's a general trend we see not only here; we see it all over Europe. In the Middle Ages, even in the late Middle Ages, wood is good business. You cut it. You sell it. It's with firewood we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, construction timber is, is also good business, but you never get enough of it. And uh, Anyway, you, you will have to give to your peasants who feel their houses burned down last year, so what will you do? Um, you won't let them just you know, ho- be homeless. That's not going to work. You have to give them the, the, the timber that they need. So you won't get that much. Uh, it's firewood we're talking about, but fire, firewood is very, very good business uh, in the Middle Ages. In this place uh, that I'm talking about, in this estate, in the 14th century, one-fourth of the whole income was coming from firewood sales, as a lot. Every fourth forint, <laughs> uh, which they didn't have, of course, came from woodland sales. This is what they were doing, very, very intensive management, making a lot of money out of it. Now, this changes uh, also in other places by the early modern period, by which time you want you keep your money somewhere else. It's all over. This is not so interesting anymore. Uh, what you would do is you would let your let your peasants or tenants, depending on the system, come in and take the firewood they want. They would do it themselves. You would write a contract. So you do this, you pay this and that much money, and you'll, you'll be okay. And you keep the construction timber for yourself. It would be more in a kind of kind of closed system. You wouldn't be selling all that much anymore. Which, uh, which is interesting. I mean, it's, it is the Middle Ages we're taught. That is kind of a self-contained system mm, that they would like, you know, produce everything they needed and no, not much commerce and all that. But th- in this case, it's clearly the other way around. Right, right. It's a commodity that, you know, so many people need. So I could, I could see how it would, having a well-managed wooded area could be very profitable. Mm. There comes a period when it stops to be economically profitable. You just, you, you would be interested in fish because it pays more. Is, is there any reason for that or just I'm not an economic historian. I, okay. I think it's got its own reason. Simply, if you if you have a fish pond, uh, you can make ten times more money than than from a woodland. So you would want to have a fish pond. You know, invest your energy into that one, and, and just not so not not care so much about the the money 
that you can get from your woodlands now you still that doesn't still that, have them right that that doesn't mean anything in in terms of management for example management we know for example that this place was always the same it's just the ac- the, the financial economic conditions have changed a lot around it I have a, a question that came to mind, and um, do with it what you will, but um, for me there's, in, in maybe late medieval and early modern um, representations of the landscape, usually, like, I'm, for me I'm thinking of city maps, but that probably wouldn't be such a um, good source of info, but city maps or general maps of a certain region, they'll depict trees as part of the, the landscape, either, you know, usually in the hinterlands, like, outside of the city walls, et cetera, et cetera. Are these reliable sources of information, in your opinion, on issues related to woodlands and forestry, or is it, is it more of an artistic trope? Oliver Rackham, who's the, the most famous person in my topic, is the father of the whole thing, wrote repeatedly that it's surprising how few artists are able to paint recognizable trees. Most probably, he says, is because a tree is such a complex thing that to pick out uh, the features that you need to be able to recognize that tree, uh, that's an extremely difficult thing. You really have to know the tree, to know what to look for. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's not only uh, late medieval and early modern, much, much later. And that's also true. Usually you get a painting, I don't know, 17th, 18th century, you get the tree and you have no idea what kind of tree that is. I am not a botanist, so my opinion is not necessarily all that valid, but uh, this is just what happens. So uh, in in city maps and all that, the trees and the landscape is usually very generalized. They just they painted a generic tree. There was the bushy top tree, yes. and then the tree with the kind of the little leaves, or I don't know. I mean, sometimes you, you, you do see a nice painting where you can see, okay, I can see that's an oak because mm-hmm. it's got the very characteristic leaves, or that's an ash because of the, the leaves and the pattern of the leaves but that's very very rare and as far as landscapes are concerned they didn't really i mean they just wanted to they wanted to paint a, a background uh, well, i'd imagine it'd be, it might even be more important to be like here are the three most important churches in the city yes. you know here's the road system you know more important considerations perhaps well as gerhard Yaritz was telling us often that it's they uh, whenever you see such a thing in, in, in a medieval piece of art it's meant to have a meaning well uh, and that meaning is not, I mean, the purpose is not depicting any sort of landscape. The, per- the, the, the point is to, to convey a certain message. There is one painting, though, medieval, I think. Once again, it's, it's, uh, it's famously quoted by Rackham. The single pin- painting, he says, he knows that depicts uh, a recognizable medieval wood. If you look at it, yes, you can, uh, you can recognize the trees. There are many, many interesting features that come with woodland management. They're all there. Uh, even in the foreground, you can recognize certain species in the vegetation. It was painted by a Dutch master, if I'm not mistaken. So you know, they were capable of doing it. They were just not so much interested. And, and just a final question before we cut to the small break. Are there any forests in Bohemian Hungary that you feel really need further study? Oh, a lot. Oh, okay. <laughs> of course. Uh, well... I mean, woodland woodland history was in vogue in the first half of the 20th century in a certain kind of fashion that we don't like too much nowadays. I it see. had a certain kind of agenda, but nonetheless, uh, the material they gathered is valuable. The, the work they did uh, was huge, so we need to appreciate that. But after the 1950s, 60s, 70s, maybe it all stopped mm. and not much was going on for decades. So there's a lot, there's a lot of work to be done. Before we finish off um, um, with our program, I wanted to ask um, about your current work and sort of, you know, what you're working on right now. 
I'm working on a larger project financed by the European Research Council. It's about long-term woodland dynamics uh, in Central Europe. Oh, you can check it out, by the way, if you're interested. It's www.longwood.cz. It's a Czech website. Well, it's a larger project, as I said. It involves interdisciplinary research uh, by a number of people from various disciplines. Paleoecologists, GIS specialists, historians, archaeologists, botanists, vegetation ecologists. I hope I didn't forget anyone. Working on uh, long-term woodland dynamics in Moravia is about I mean, 23,000 square kilometers, fairly large region, and we're building uh, a geodatabase, a GIS, uh, feeding lots of data into it from various sources. I mean, the data is very heterogeneous, obviously. Vegetation ecologists have very different data from, from historians. Uh, Palynologists have very different data from archaeologists, but uh, fortunately now GIS exists and the technology makes it possible to connect all these things uh, and ask ask various questions uh, once you're ready. Now we're, one, uh, we're a year and a half into the project, so we don't have that much data, but it's coming on and also some publications are coming out. So I think in general, project's looking up, so we'll see. Very interdisciplinary project and it sounds fantastic. Dr. Sabo, thank you very much for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure having you here. Thank you very much. <laughs> And for the listeners back home, we thank you very much for listening as well. Be sure to tune in on our website at www.medievalradio.org. Be sure to send us an email at medievalradio at ceu.hu. And be sure to like us on Facebook as part of our One Million Medievalists campaign. We thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.